Marcast is made possible by Hayes Marketing and Digital, the recruiting experts in marketing and digital roles across Australia for a wide range of industries and job functions. Most people do not make decisions on their purchases rationally. There seems to be this tide of trying to rationalise everything that is marketing. Welcome to Marcast, the Marketing Mag podcast series. Each episode brings you in-depth, one-on-one conversations with some of Australia's sharpest marketing minds. Today is part two of Dave's chat with Mo Bargava, General Manager of Sales and Marketing at Village Entertainment and Topgolf Australia. Last episode, Mo introduced Dave to the Village Cinemas and new Topgolf brands, discussing disruption and strategy. What about disrupting your own disruption of your traditional businesses? You've talked about yeah, yeah. about Topgolf and going into a new category. What yeah. about what what are you doing to disrupt your own cinemas business and that experience? Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's plenty happening in the cinema space that is, uh, for argument's sake, self disrupting. So, for instance, our most recent location that was open in the northern part of of Melbourne uh, has no traditional cinema houses. So uh, it is our view as a business that, um, you know, and that is how committed we are to delivering differentiated cinema-going experiences. So you can go into that complex, uh, you can experience films in Gold Class, you can experience films in V Junior, which is something we introduced two years ago, which is Australia, which was Australia's first dedicated kids' theatre. The local analogy would be it's like Gold Class for kids because yep. it has a play lounge and giant slides and um, we've, we've basically taken away all the pain points speaking with our customers um, as to what parents find annoying about coming to the movies. We've introduced Australia's first 40X cinema, which is largely catering to the millennial market, where it sort of amplifies all your senses. So it's kind of like going to a theme park movie experience. The seats move with the film on screen. There's smoke, there's bubbles, there's toe ticklers. So it's really, I mean, it's not for you and me, to be honest, uh, <laughs> but but it is performing extremely well, you know. So So we are doing a lot of things as a business to enrich the cinema experience from a hardware and software perspective. The overall food and beverage experience is being evolved. We are constantly disrupting our own pricing models. Very recently, uh, we introduced a member pricing model, which which basically offers a flat discount, um, upwards of 30% to all our members all day, every day. Which was again about accessibility, affordable entertainment. Yep. So, so you know, we are we are we are working every lever yep. to disrupt ourselves, offer an environment where, if a kid says to us that they want to go to the cinema with a slide, that is, our job's done. You know, because yeah. that's where we're delivering an experience that's differentiated. You can't get that at home. You can't get that at our competitors. Gold class itself is very differentiated. It's very mature and established. We're doing the same thing with 40X. We also have Cinema Europa, which caters to our more discerning and, and, and older audiences where uh, there's a cafe-style menu, the seats are a little more plush, the kind of content you see is a bit more discerning. So, you know, if you go into a cinema complex today, uh, you should see four or five ways of consuming content. And that is my point about you should be driven by the experience, not the film. So, yeah. And a lot yeah. of our customers tell us they feel like going to gold class and then they work out what's on. Or parents say it's, it's you know, I can't wait to take my kids to V Junior, what's playing? Yeah. That is for us, you know, the Experience end game. Experience first, con- Experience content. Experience first, correct. Second, no, always important. But- content is, is pivotal to the business, yeah. you know, uh, but we can't rely wholly and solely on the content. Yeah. 
And in in many cases, I imagine you're playing the same content across multiple of those yes, in some experiences we are. anyway. Yeah, and it's, absolutely. Yeah. But people are fundamentally choosing the experience and in some instances willingly paying more. Uh, and that, again, goes back to the retailing aspect is, you know, you've got two choices to make as a retailer. You're either going to end up in the price game or you're going to yeah. go end up in the experience game. And as a yeah. business, we're choosing to be in the experience game. Tell us a little bit about how yeah. you use customer voice in, sure. your, in your business. A few years ago, we, we and, and this was under strong stewardship of our CEO, we introduced a robust voice of customer program. Uh, we're sending out over a million surveys uh, a year of which, and, and, and they're not all generic surveys, they're informed by and customised by nature of what you've consumed and when. We are in a very fortunate position where our customers love to tell us what they liked and what they didn't like. And so we're not just purely measuring NPS as well. We're yeah. measuring the entire user journey. So some of these surveys are actually quite long, but our customers love to, to tell us. So yeah. may as well use that information. That Voice of Customer program has gone on to now influence every aspect of our business improvement strategies. So from OPEX to CAPEX, we are looking at what the voice of customer tells us to unlock resources and prioritise enhancements. In short, it is, it is the central source of truth in terms of what we do and how we innovate. We don't leave it at that, however. We actually then bring the customers in to help us prototype. Yep. Um, so the Kid Cinema is a great example. Um, we, we, re, we had... Um, assigned one traditional cinema location where we were prototyping lots of aspects of entertainment and enhancements and we were bringing in families and young children to work with us that are current customers, yep. uh, providing us with live um, feedback and in, in some ways that became an agile you know, exercise of you know, something as simple as what flavours of milkshakes and smoothies should we include in the menu all the way through to seating formats, what form of kids' entertainment should be included in the play lounge all aspects were driven with true collaboration with our customers. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel very comfortable saying that we're not just talking the talk. It's, it's very much part of uh, how, we, how we do business today. Diversity yep. of, of the Australian demographic, diversity as a source of innovation. I know it's something that you're quite passionate about. Tell yes. us a little bit about diversity through that lens. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, diversity comes in, in um, several dimensions. So if we looked at, you know, diversity in the context of corporate media today, for the vast majority, what we're referring to is gender diversity. Yep. And, and, and for the record, I'm, I'm very supportive of that discussion and, 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 and we need to work hard at establishing parity. What I'm referring to, and I touched on it earlier in, re in relation to the cinema business, is, is ethnic diversity when it and the yep. benefits and the challenges that it, that brings to large-scale retail and entertainment businesses in Australia. By and large, if you look at... Um, organisations in Australia that have been around for a 50 to 60 year tenure, it would not be unusual for very senior management to have strong tenures. I'm not just speaking about entertainment. If you yeah. looked at it by and large, you'll, you'll see that pattern form. What that does do, uh, whether we like it or not, and is, is create a level of familiarity bias. And that over time can actually disengage your product in your category from who your true customer is off the day. A lot of people today are speaking about the fact that, you know, Australia's, you know, the face of Australia has changed. It's, you know, one in four Australians are not born here. 60% of households in Melbourne and Sydney speak more than one language. And what does that mean for, for your respective organisations? So in our instance, for cinema specifically, it's been a blessing because essentially uh, it has allowed us to do, to do three things. 
One, it's allowed us to diversify what we sell. For example, uh, Indian cinema uh, is growing in Australia at a rate of 25% year on year. We're a very mature market. Uh, the box office grows at a rate of 2 to 3% at best. We see tremendous opportunity in that space. You look at the same with Asian films and Korean films and Filipino films. So the breadth of what we can bring to the screens has diversified. And, you know, as a business that has to keep the lights on 365 days a year, having yeah. more content is fantastic. And, and that inherently allows us to recruit new customers into our business. Um, sometimes the job has already been done because the customer has an appetite for cinema going. We just need to ensure that the experience matches their needs. And that's where you start to understand the patterns are not the same for every customer set. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, you know, we did a lot of work on the, uh, we call it the V India program, but it's our Indian uh, movie segment. And we, we just couldn't work out the right scheduling of these films, you know, yeah. uh, you know, where do we show them, what are the right times, and, you know, which films to show and which ones to not show because not every film is going to be a blockbuster. And so as we sort of work through this piece, it was, it was really fascinating to understand the habits in, of, of cinema going for that customer are very different compared to cinema going habits of somebody who's perhaps, you know, uh, grown up in Australia and only watches English films. Yeah. Um, families will very comfortably come out on a weekday for an 8pm show to watch an Indian film because that's yeah. what everybody does back in India. Yeah. And that has led us to really change how we schedule, how we, uh, how we cater food and beverage. Some of our locations today, if it wasn't for Indian films, uh, they would not be seeing the kind of growth that they are. So, so that's, that's just one aspect of the business. You know, we are, we are working on our retail strategies with that, with that same segment around how we actually bring in gift cards into their world. Um, we are doing cultural events and activations that coincide with massive film launches in that market, which has only happened over the course of time. Um, yep. No different to Boxing Day being the biggest day for movies in Australia. There are certain dates in, in, in their calendar which are the biggest dates for movies in those calendars. So we're, we are actively onboarding this information and diversifying our approach to cater to a diverse market. That's a real challenge for some other businesses. What's getting in the way of other organisations um, looking at this through the same lens? Look, there's there's a few things, Dave. I mean, I uh, it'd be if I was being brutally honest with you, um, I think the industry is reacting to the opportunity more than being proactive, and that's yep. a, that's on a global scale in the movie business. If you read anything, just Google diversity and and Hollywood, and you'll see the kind of press at the moment, right? Yep. So it's all about minority groups driving the overall box office worldwide, the influence of China and so forth, and then businesses are gearing up. And, and as I said, we just happen to be in the fortunate position where we work in a category that is truly global, so we don't have to build content um, empathy and advocacy. The customer comes into this country with those things. We just have to ensure that we are offering it up at the right times at the right price with the right packages and experiences available. If you were... A Holden, for example, on the other hand, as an auto brand that's intrinsically Australian, your journey has been very different to ours. And, and, and you know, as a, as a marketing um, function, they have very different challenges to evolve their brand to connect with a diverse market. 
we work with Vegemite, they're, they're, they're key partners of ours. They're a very sharp business and they understand what they need to do to drive recruitment from new Australians into Vegemite. And that is, I would argue, that's one of the biggest challenges <laughs> that's a, that's a for a marketer. Challenge. So, you know, they are working on food fusion strategies. We recently launched Vegemite-flavoured popcorn with them, which was actively promoted in foreign films. So, you know, so there are a lot of strategies that the guys in different categories are deploying to, to onboard... Yeah. new segments and new Australians into their business, it's not easy. We're, we're sitting in a, in a lovely studio of a major broadcaster. Uh, if you looked at what SBS has done, I mean, they are, uh, if my memory serves me right, they are the only free-to-air uh, network that's actually growing their audiences. And, and you look at their content suite, they are catering to a very diverse market. So, so you know, there is no silver bullet. One has to work with the category and the product and the reality of the ecosystem you're in. But I don't think you, at no matter what level you operate in an organisation, can turn a blind eye to the fact that Australia today is a different market to what it was 20 years ago. And ethnic diversity is one of the biggest changes that has occurred and will continue to occur. You know, whether you choose to accept and, and, and optimise to that opportunity or not will determine where your business ends up in another 20 years. Can you tell us a little bit about, not specific firms, but tell yeah. us a little bit about the, how, how you use external third parties to support the work that you're doing in marketing at Village? Sure. So, look, we have, uh, we have some great um, external agencies and third parties that support us. I'm not going to, to call out on any agency individually. It's a long list and uh, whilst I love them all, it's, uh, it's going to be unfair if I, yeah. uh, if I miss somebody rather. But look, I personally over the years, I've, I've cultivated this, this structure or of, of how I choose to d- define an effective um, agency relationship. Like any marketer, you like to use a, uh, a campaign headline. So for me, that's trust. And yep. the way I, I break trust down is, is T for talent, R for relationships, U for understanding, S for sympathy, and the last T is for tech. Now, those are the five pillars, in my view, that an agency needs to tick for us to have an effective relationship. And collectively, if you are delivering good talent, you understand our business, you have the right relationships in markets, so you can help us leverage uh, whether it's the media or other rights owners over and above what a transaction would normally look like, you have true sympathy towards the KPIs people in our teams hold, which are not necessarily cost per clicks or cost per acquisitions. Uh, We are held accountable to sales. And lastly, but most importantly in today's landscape, you have reliable, transparent and effective tech. That to me is what collectively allows me to trust and eventually work effectively with an agency partner. So... So that's, you know, because, I mean, you know, otherwise trust becomes this, we, we, we speak about trust all the time. Yeah, it's uh, easy. And, easy. and it's such a subjective thing. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, so for me, that's how I've chosen to break down and being able to actually score my yep. trust scorecard, if you like. Yep. Um, and, and most of the partners that we work with um, score highly on that red card. And, uh, and, and that's been very, very important. You know, we, we, we're in some instances working with very small size agencies and partners. Uh, but in that scenario, what we do get in return is that we are often working with the business owner or a senior director level person, yep. which is which is critical to us because in, in that specific dynamic, I might have somebody who's quite junior in my team. Uh, so I need somebody that's quite senior on the agency side to fill that gap. Uh, if I have somebody that's quite senior in my team, 
then I might not might not need somebody ex- equally senior on the other side to to fill the knowledge void or the or the yeah. or the experience gap. So so we've carefully orchestrated our relationships. Is there a, a standout technology that you're utilising in recent times that has really changed or added significant value to to marketing? Um, Look, I think the the one piece uh, of tech that has really helped us um, uh, has been around first-party data enrichment. And that has really reshaped the way we think about our customers. Um, You know, we've gone from uh, data inputs to to essentially looking at our, you know, a humanised profile of of, of all our customers. It changes the conversation at a boardroom level because, you know, we start talking about humans as opposed to to customer IDs. It's changed our go-to-market strategy. It's changed our relationships with our suppliers because, um, you know, eventually we're all trying to reach the same customer and if we can offer greater insight into that customer, then it certainly makes more sense for our suppliers to work with us more closely. That's really been one of the biggest enhancements that we've made in the last six to 12 months is really looking at each customer transaction, appending that to an individual customer ID, enriching that customer ID to a point where it starts to look more and more human, and then looking at how we fare as, yeah. a, as a retailer in our market share based on you know, how many million customers come through our doors yeah. in a 12-month cycle. We've talked a lot about Mo at, at Village. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about Mo, Mo himself, a, a bit about your your overall journey, defining moments and experiences, what stands out over the long run? What's, what's, we've talked about your first job and being out <laughs> in the field and how that's yeah. really yeah, informed, yeah. informed a large part of your career throughout. What else stands yeah. out? What are the... Look, I think, um, you know, and, and thank you for asking that question. Not many people do. So um, I, I would say the most defining things in my life have been not work-related, you know, I've, um, I, was, I was born in another country. I've lived in a few countries. I've married someone from a country that I had never been to prior to marrying that person. And we're raising children in a country where neither of us were, were born. So, yeah. uh, so those are the things that have given me enormous perspective and resilience as well. You know, you, you really, uh, I think, um, until you do it yourself, to, to, to move uh, across the waters, start again, build families and, 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 and sustain and maintain ties with those that you've left behind. This stuff takes resilience and it takes a bit of grit. So that's where I think all that stuff has come from. In terms of, um, you know, my journey professionally, it's all been a blessing and a gift. You know, you and I are talking here, uh, I've, I've never been in this sort of situation and gone, oh, geez, I've had a long day. I've got so many meetings. I feel very lucky because I've seen what the other side of the world has uh, in store and, and some of these things where we're just very fortunate and I never lose sight of that. So, so that's, that's, that's something that I hope that everybody understands in our immediate circle of listeners that, uh, you know, we are very privileged to have these conversations and this is not something that one should just take for granted. And I think that helps me just to do good work and be, be positive. Apart from that, uh, things that have helped shape me is great leaders and great mentors. Um, I've gone out of my way to seek them out. And sometimes it's never, it's never been a formal relationship. It's just been adding value into other people's journeys, but yep. subconsciously getting enough back. Yep. Uh, and that's, that's really taught me a lot along the way. And look, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm very, just by nature, I'm curious. So I've, I've, 
that's that's always put me in good stead. I still don't know if I see myself as a marketer, if I was being brutally honest with yep. you. I'm just a curious individual that understands and, and, and likes to explore as much as I possibly can about consumer psychology. That really um, helps me put, make sense of a lot of things because a lot of things in the marketing speak don't make any sense to me at all. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still working it all out. Where to from here for the future of marketing? What, how do you see the, the role, the space changing and progressing from here? <laughs> I, I love this stuff. You know, when I, people ask me to talk about the future because it's like predicting the weather in Melbourne. Like, you know, there's, there's zero accountability. Okay, so but on a more ser- serious note, I think the one challenge that we will all face is, and this is my intrinsic belief and I've my life experiences and others that I observe, it's, it's consistently held true, is that most people do not make decisions on their purchases rationally. There seems to be this tide of trying to rationalise everything that is marketing. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about data. We've yeah. talked a lot about tech. We've looked, and, you know, uh, the output of all of these things is automation. Automation, machine and learning, machine learning and All that stuff, right? So I think the, the one, one big challenge we'll have uh, in the future is is really finding that intrinsic balance between emotion and automation. You can't automate your way into convincing a customer to believe in your brand. Uh, and brand still means something. And brand is what drives you to choose the sneakers you wear, to the cereal box you you know you choose to open in the morning. And uh, even and I, I remember my. Uh, young days when I used to read street press and all that cool stuff, there was a lot of people like, oh, man, I read street press because I don't care about brands. Yeah. I'm like, well, you kind of do. That's why you're wearing Dunlop Volleys. It is yeah, the anti-establishment brand of that era. Yeah. So everything is a brand. You know, If you stand by something, eventually you will find brands that stand by the same things. Yeah. That's going to be a real challenge. I think there's a lot of young marketers coming through as well that I see now that are their own brand. Yep. So you know, everybody today publishes content. Yep. Everybody can cut a video. And then some of these guys struggle to to distinguish between their personal brand, if they're real brand publishers, and, and the business brand. So these are some challenges that we will have. You know, the, the next generation of talent coming through in marketing, uh, or for that matter, for any, in any sphere, is, is going to think and behave very differently. So that is going to be a challenge from a development and growth perspective for yep. the next generation of marketers and how current marketers are able to, you know, how do you find that balance? And then the other thing that I think that's going to be equally challenging, if not more, is this balance between automation and emotion. To the first point, because it's not about you as the marketer, which I think is a thread that has come through from pretty much all of our conversation yeah. today. What what your preferences are, your individual preferences, yes. what your personal experience is, your, your your own demographic, your own background experience yeah. is is far less important than your customer's value. If you if you're so focused on your own brand and, yeah. and what you're interested in, yeah. then and that presents a, a challenge for how Absolutely effective a marketer not. you can be. And it, and it starts with you, but you know, then if I could count the number of boardroom meetings I've been in where someone extremely senior has referred to an idea or a notion you've been presenting yep. by citing their kids as examples, it happens all the time. Yep. You know, we are intrinsically using our immediate circle of um, yep. contacts to validate or, or, or negate um, a thought process. I was listening to uh, an interview with one of the founders of uh, Rent the Catwalk 
which is a ability to, if you're not familiar with the business, US business, where you can you can for about a, te- a tenth of the price of a of a um, premium designer gown, you can rent it for the weekend. Yep. When she was pitching this to venture capitalists to raise money, the way she tells the story is pretty much every VC she pitched to, without exception, every one of them either said, I'll ask my wife, I'll ask my daughter, or I'll ask my admin assistant, which, as she tells the story, none of those three were in any way her market. And yet every investor wanted to use one of those three sources. There's a great line in a film, and it's never underestimate the predictability of stupidity. It happens all around us, all the time. Stand there for a sec. I'm going to get out my crystal ball. Yep. Okay. That's, here we are. Now just rub your hands over it for me, like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And look into the future. The village business five years from now. Yes. What's it look like? It'll continue to be one of Australia's leading entertainment businesses. We will have a richer suite of offerings than we do today. And one of the things that I believe Village will continually do better than anybody else, and that's because it's in the business's DNA, is entertain Australian families authentically. We are one of the only, if not the only, company left that is Melbourne born and raised, has gone out and done amazing things around the world, but remained committed to the Australian market like no one else. What about uh, Mo five years from now? Um, look, I'm very grateful for everything that I've been able to accomplish in my personal and professional life. I, I hope to continue to be challenged and stay interested. Um, I think I, uh, the fear that drives me is boredom. And I'm, I'm, as long as I'm interested and uh, my kids are fed, it'll be all good. No, I can't imagine any stage of your life where your curiosity doesn't keep you interested and leads to boredom. So um, thank you for your chat today. No, thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Mo for giving up his time to appear on MarCast. More episodes are coming soon and you can stay up to date in the meantime at marketingmag.com.au. Marcast is made possible by Hayes Marketing and Digital, the recruiting experts in marketing and digital roles across Australia for a wide range of industries and job functions. For the latest insights on what it takes to be a marketing director, download the Hayes Report, DNA of a Marketing Director at hayes.com.au.